Well, we've jumped into a brand new sermon series on the book of Luke, where today Luke chapter one is going to focus on two people who could not be more different. One is an old man who's walked with the Lord for decades, and one is a young girl just getting started. And yet, God uses them both and calls them both to be a part of His redemptive plan as He breaks into history after 400 silent years. Where there's been no word from the Lord, no prophet has spoken, no sign has been given. You need to realize from the end of the Old Testament, the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew. We just turn the page and go from Malachi to Matthew. There were 400 years between those. Until God sent his angel Gabriel to each of these individuals we're going to look at. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, what Luke's talking about is priests would live all over the land and they took turns being assigned to serve and they would move, they would leave their house and go live in Jerusalem for the time that their unit was serving. Zechariah's been called up. He's in Jerusalem serving. Before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. This is John the Baptist that's going to come into our world to prepare the way for our Savior. And you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings! 
Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name. Say it. Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So what should we know about how our God works and who he chooses to use most? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one. Your place in this world never limits your part in God's plan. Oh, Luke is showing us in this first chapter two very different people. One's a man. One's a woman. One's very old. One's very young. One's educated. One's uneducated. One has walked with the Lord for decades. One is just getting going In her spiritual walk with the Lord. One is already serving God in prominent public ways. One has no significant spiritual achievements to point to at all. But God used them both. Because our God does not think and act. Like our world. He doesn't think and act like our world, you guys. Regarding the qualifications that are required for who God uses most. Radically different. Startling. So let's talk about each of these people. Zechariah, Mary. Zechariah was in the prime of his life. And at the pinnacle of his vocational success. You say, Brad, what are you talking about? This, Zechariah has served the Lord for decades as a priest. But right here in Luke chapter 1, he has been chosen to go into the holy place for the evening sacrifice of incense. Here's what I want you to understand. There were 20,000 priests serving in Israel at that time. You could go your whole life, serve your whole life faithfully, and never be chosen. And if you were chosen, you could only do this once in a lifetime. So this was probably the greatest day in all of Zachariah's life. He had to be thrilled. Word was probably spreading and trickling back to his hometown Between family and friends, Zechariah's been chosen. Zechariah's going into the holy place. Zechariah's offering the incense offering tonight. Zechariah's been chosen. And so we have no problem understanding how God might use, choose to use this man who's been faithful for decades and now is in this position of being chosen to go into the holy place. Sure, send him an angel, speak to him, do something amazing for him. 
What about this young girl, Mary? The pendulum swings in the opposite direction when you dig into what Mary has to offer. Because Mary was at the start of her life and was devoid, devoid of any outstanding achievements. Here's what you need to realize. She was probably 13 or 14 years old because that's the age of a young girl when she was betrothed to a man to be married. I know people today are getting married more like 28, 29, 30, 31 if they get married. This was a different day when you were betrothed, which was a super serious engagement, to be married to a man. You were typically 13 or 14 years old. And oh, by the way, she was from an insignificant city called Nazareth in one of the most despised regions called Galilee. So in a real sense, she was a nobody from nowhere. But God chose to use her to bring into our world somebody who would change the course of history and our eternal destinies forever. That's how our God works. That's how our God works. So be encouraged. I know we live in a day where we just, it's, the thinking is so different of what you have to be and what you have to look like and what you have to have on your resume to be chosen to do anything significant. Be encouraged today. If you feel like a nobody from nowhere with a resume that would never catch anyone's attention in our world, I've got great news for you. You, along with Mary, are actually the very kind of person that God delights in using most. I've chosen my words very carefully. Sometimes we can even get our heads around. Every now and then God steps aside and reaches out for one of those losers just to show he can do it. Throw the loser crowd a bone. Use one of them. You guys, it's not the exception. You read your Bible. This is how our God acts and thinks. This is standard operating procedure for God. To choose these kind of people. Which is why the Apostle Paul in, our, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Two wonderful words. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why does he operate this way? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Oh, listen to me. Here's what you actually need to understand. Your status, position, power, accolades, and achievements often only get in the way of God using you more. So don't think that your insignificant place in this world ever rules you out or limits your part in God's plan. Remember, it's a radical upside down kingdom. Our God does not think or act like we do. But let me point out something else that so often we think disqualifies us from being used. Number two, your troubled questions never shut God down or cause him to give up on using you. We've got two troubled people in this chapter. You saw the word both times. Zechariah was troubled. Mary was troubled. And that's not a word in the Greek that meant just mildly disturbed. It meant like, woo, perplexed, undone. 
beside yourself. In fact, it says Zechariah was troubled and the Greek word for Mary puts dia in front of it, which was a preposition that meant ramp it up. Dia was the word through. She was troubled through and through. Zacharias was troubled and she was troubled all the way through. Two troubled people both ask questions, which is what we often do when we're troubled. But they're asking two very different kinds of questions. Now, neither one gets ruled out, but they are asking two very different kinds of questions. You see, Zechariah was focused on his circumstances and demanding further proof. That's what his question is about, you guys. He is not... He is not, by his question, seeking additional information or clarification. Look at it in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's saying, God, I don't believe it. Prove it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You're going to have to prove it. See, here's... Here's what I believe is going on with Zechariah, and I can relate, and I bet you can relate. You ever had a prayer that you've been praying forever, and it hurts so bad to keep hoping it might be answered? You think the way to not hurt so much is to not hope so much. We're done. I'm not going to pray it anymore. I believe that's the point. They, they are advanced in years. They have longed for a child. I'm sure they prayed for a child, but you get to point like, we're not asking anymore because it hurts so much. God... I cannot go through a new wave of hurt. I cannot go back to our hometown and announce this to Elizabeth. She would hurt so much if it doesn't happen. Prove it. Prove it. What are you going to do to prove this? You say, Brad, how do you know that's all going on in his heart, that he's guilty of unbelief? Verse 20 tells us. Look at what it says in verse 20. When the angel rebukes him. I believe it looked like this. I believe Gabriel put his hands on his hips. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to give you this good news, dude. You ought to be rejoicing. You ought to rip out of here telling everybody. But because your mouth isn't ready to praise God for this incredible blessing that's coming your way. Here's what we're going to do for you. You won't speak at all. You're going to be mute. And you, look at it in verse 20, you will be silent. Since you're, you couldn't speak like you should, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Now, that's the bad news. Here's a priest, right? We're contrasting a priest and young girl. Who, who probably has more of a history of seeing answer to prayer, of knowing God well, of knowing their Old Testament? Any examples in the Old Testament starting in Genesis? He had the Old Testament that shows God granting a child to a barren woman all the time. And he's in the holy place. He should have had more of an awareness of the awe of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. But he's the one that digs in his heels with unbelief. Here's the good news. And God doesn't move on and say, all right, can't use you. That's some really good news. Because guess what? Even though this ugly moment came at the pentacle, pinnacle of his life, it did not characterize his life. He simply fell into unbelief just like we do from time to time. Did you know that believers, Christians, can be guilty of unbelief? Don't hear me saying, I'm saved, then I'm not saved. But can Christians be guilty of unbelief? Your heart heart starts to get hard. You've been hurt. You've been deceived by sin. Or it hurts too much to keep hoping. Yes. We don't have time to read it, but that's why in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews writes a group of believers in Hebrews chapter 3 and says... Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need each other. When I'm doing terrible, when I'm dooby-dooby down, when darkness characterizes my life, I need to be around Christians who are hopeful at this moment, and we got to hold on to each other and exhort each other. That's why we encourage us to gather together at close range in community groups. That's why it's good to get together with believers for coffee and meals and patio and cookouts. We need each other or we could find ourselves in a really bad place. Zechariah, despite decades of serving the Lord and pointing other people to the faithfulness of God, is guilty of unbelief in this moment. But it did not characterize his life. How did he get there? He did the same thing that we can be guilty of. He looked at his circumstances first and what God could do last. Notice he says, "Uh, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Yeah, whatever. God's still promising this. He's looking at his circumstances. So how is Mary's troubled question different? Well, let's dig into it a minute. If you look at her question carefully, you guys... You'll see that Mary was already surrendered to this new role and calling. She was just wondering out loud, how is this going to happen? Look at verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Do you hear the difference? She's accepting the fact that it's going to be. She's just wondering, how is this going to be because I'm a virgin? And so, again, I want to contrast Zechariah with young Mary and point something out that's so so noteworthy of a Mary that we can emulate even in her young walk with the Lord. While Zechariah, listen, while Zechariah was guarding his heart from additional pain. And I get it. Sometimes we just think, if I don't hope, I won't hurt. He was guarding his heart from additional pain and probably shielding his wife from additional pain. Look at the contrast. Mary, when she takes the posture she does, is opening herself up to incredible shame. Do you realize that? you got to understand, this was a very different culture. I know we live in a culture today where couples just live together. Ladies are having babies left and right. There's no shame. It doesn't matter. Married, not married, live together, not even live together. I don't, he's not even here. He's just my baby daddy and I'm his baby mama. doesn't matter how you want to do this. Have a baby anytime, anywhere, any way. And you still get a baby shower and everyone still oozes and awes over you. Don't hear me saying we should shame them or we should punish them. Do hear me saying appreciate the difference. Mary was living in a culture where unwed pregnant girls were shamed, exiled, and sometimes drugged to the city gate to be executed publicly as an example to everyone else. That's what she's saying yes to right now. That possibility. So here's what I want you to get a hold of that we struggle to understand that is also contrary to human logic and thinking. When God chooses you to get in on what he's doing in our world, it can be very unsettling and even disturbing to the whole course of your life. Things may never be the same and many of your well-laid plans as well as your personal reputation can get blown up in the process of obeying God. Do you know that? We've got this unbiblical theology. I do what God wants. I'm blessed. He just blesses my socks off. And by us, our definition of the word blessed is it gets easier. More fun stuff happens to me. Oh my goodness. Serve God. Obey God. You don't see that in the Bible. Don't hear me saying God goes out of his way to punish those who obey him most. But God does not shield and protect and make our lives easier as you obey him and follow him. You don't get that from the Bible. You get it from best-selling Christian authors. But it's not in the Bible. 
Very often, when you say like Mary, yes, Lord, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And you begin to do what he calls you to do. Life just starts to get difficult and complicated. So that's my third point I want you to grab hold of. God's favor on you doesn't always leave you feeling more comfortable and calm. You realize? There are times that it does. Praise God. Don't don't hear me saying he never calms us. He never comforts us. He's a good dad. But he is a father. And good fathers often still nudge their kids and let them experience pain. Let them wrestle. Let them... He's that kind of father. Puts us in circumstances where we're going to have to grow. We're going to have to get our roots down deeper. We're going to have to rethink what we think and why we believe what we believe. Our happiness is not his goal. Our conformity to his son is his goal. And his son suffered. We will do. We will do. In other words... Here's how I'd say it to you. The favor of God doesn't always feel like a warm lap blanket and a favorite pair of comfortable shoes. Bring it, God. That's exactly what I would want to do with my life. No, it can be very unsettling and disturbing. The favor of God can leave you unsettled and more disturbed than you were before his favor fell on you. Because very often... As he favors you and as he pours out his grace on you and chooses to use you, it involves a step out of what you know into the unknown and a step out of your comfortable routine into new and personal risk. Any of you know what I'm talking about? And you see this all through the scriptures, you guys. The people God favors, he often unsettles in order to use them in his kingdom. Abraham, get up. I know, it's going well. Cookouts, you love the kids, the grandkids. Get over it. Get up. Leave your land. Leave all that you're familiar with. Where? I'll tell you as you get going. Oh, I love stuff like this. (laughs) Just go. And I'll direct you. Leave. And, and, and he's, he's not young. Oh, I love an adventure. He's old. The older we get, we keep laughing and saying, I just love not going anywhere. <laughs> hey, want to go out to eat? Yeah. And then an hour before, let's not. Oh, I'm so, so glad. I was hoping you'd say that. Just stay here. I get it. As you get older, it's like, there's nothing better than just being home. Home is so good. Go. And I'll show you where as you go. Moses, he's settled into being a shepherd on the backside of the Midian desert for 40 years. Bush blows up. Go to the most powerful country, Egypt, in that day. Talk to who? The most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh. Say what? Oh, just let the two million slaves that you're using to build all your stuff go free. Say who sent, who who do I say sent me? I am. Just say I am sent me. Can't wait for this. Are you kidding me? Noah! Build a boat. Why? It's going to flood. What's a flood? What's a ton of rain? What's rain? Hasn't rained before. There's going to be a flood. Build it how big? Oh, ginormous. So big it's going to take you a hundred years and all the kids are going to have to help you. And it won't be a secret. You can't have it in the shed. All your neighbors are going to mock you and ridicule you for a hundred years. Can't wait for that. I could go on, right? We read these stories and we fail to recognize these men and women stepped out of the comfort of known into unknown. And the comfort of routine, what I would choose that matches my personality test. I'm a seven, sevens don't do that. Doesn't matter what you are. When God calls, he calls people out of their comfort zone to do things they would never choose to do so that they will be dependent and weak and cry out to him and need him so that at the end of the day he gets the glory and not them so nobody makes a mistake and says well of course they could do that look how gifted they are 
No. Everyone's like, how did this happen? Because it's not you. You say, well, where are you getting this whole favor, grace? Two times the angel says to Mary, right? Verse 28 and 30. Favored one. Oh, God's with you. That word favor is the same Greek word that the root is charis, grace. You have been graced. God's grace has come to you. His grace has come to you. Now, we tend to think, bring it. Amazing grace. Yes, I want all the grace I can get. Here's what I want you to understand. I do too. God's grace can come to us with, in uncomfortable ways, in unsettling ways, and still be grace and favor. But you may have never chosen it. But don't say, God's abandoned me. I'm an orphan. Why is this? Ha-? God's grace. There's many faces to grace. We love the happy, easy, bright colors. But God will come to us with many uncomfortable forms of grace. Because when God pours out on its grace on us, it often leads us to go to places we would never choose on our own. And so we need to get this. We need to learn, like Mary, not to lash out or reject the grace of God when it comes to us in uncomfortable ways. Oh my goodness, she had questions. You know she had to have more questions. I mean, the angel's answer about the Holy Spirit did not settle everything. That probably just raised more. Oh yeah, that ha- I had several friends that happened. That makes perfect sense. I saw that on Facebook. About once a year, the Holy Spirit impregnates a woman. I'm the next one. I'm the chosen one. The answer doesn't help, right? That would not settle you down. You would just have so many more questions. But she just says, let it be to me according to your word. Trust. Accepting an uncomfortable form of grace. I mean, you think about it. Mary's mind had to be whirling as she wrestled with how. How could this be that I'm a favored one, that I've been graced to be an unwed, pregnant, 13-year-old girl who now gets to explain this to her fiancé and tell him, but I haven't been immoral. I've not been with another man. Trust me. Holy Spirit's the Father. If he believes you, and he did, as your belly grows, the two of you get to share this story with extended family and friends who have questions, all in a culture of shame over this. Paul Tripp says, and I quote, God's grace will come to us again and again in uncomfortable ways. This is where we tend to have an agenda conflict with our Lord. We get excited about having a safe, successful, stress-free, and predictable life. Problem with all these things is not that they're wrong to desire. The problem is that we have settled for far too little. You see, God has planned more and better things for us than we would want for ourselves. He is not content to be content, for us to be content with situational and relational ease. He will settle for nothing less than that we would become partakers of his divine nature. In other words, become more like Christ. Less of me, more of him. News alert. The process of us becoming more like Jesus almost always happens when we're way outside of our comfort zone or in a situation of affliction and adversity. So what about you today? Are you willing to say like Mary? Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. I would never have chosen this. I didn't see this coming. I would not have signed up for this. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you trust God enough to say my life is not my own? That's what the New Testament teaches. You've been bought with a price. Your life is not your own. And the one who holds on to it loses it. And the one who loses it for his sake finds it. 
Are you willing to say, God, I want to get in on what you're doing in this world? Even if it's a huge truckload of uncomfortable, unsettling grace to me. Show me where you want me to be. When you want me to be there. And what you want me to do. And I'll do it. We tend to show God, here's what I'm comfortable doing. Here's what my gifts are. Just pick anything on that. Right? We're, we're so happy to say, well, say, I want to serve God, but we have how we want to serve him and we want to tell him and we want him to get in on our plan. And he almost always just blows the list up. None of that. None of that. It's time for the people of God to walk by faith, not sight. With the unsettling, uncomfortable grace of God filling us and enabling us to do things that we would have never imagined we could do in a million years. I've told you some before, but I was painfully shy, horribly skinny, gangly boy. Never in the popular crowd, mocked. Bullied, abused almost my entire school days. So much so that I adopted a posture of just keep your head down and make no eye contact with anyone. And maybe they won't beat you up. Maybe they'll leave you alone. Cafeteria, gym locker, hallways, parking lot. Head down, make no eye contact. Head down, make no eye contact. I went through the ninth grade without speaking to anyone in class or the hallways. And you can do that if you have no friends. And then I headed off to college and settled into pre-med because I love biology and I wanted to be a doctor. But God interrupted my well-laid plans of what matched my desires and personalities halfway through my sophomore year. I kid you not. Halfway through my sophomore year. I'm not some wild charismatic, you guys. But it could have, it may as well have been an audible voice. It was so loud in my head. I'm just sitting there studying for a biology exam. I want you in full-time ministry. It's not like, oh, yeah, yeah, my dad was a pastor. My grandfather, my, my great-grandfather was a circuit-riding preacher. We got tons of missionaries in the family. No! Nobody had ever been in full-time ministry. And I'd never at VBS said, I want to serve the Lord full-time one day. <laughs> no. Ever. So I said, no. No. I argued with the Lord the whole weekend. No. How do I say this again? No. But I finally yielded. It just would not let up. I finally yielded. I remember telling my mom in the kitchen, Oh my goodness, mom, I think God's calling me into full time ministry. She's standing there cooking. She's like, Oh, I wish it was your brother. <laughs> well, that's affirmation. He was failing all of his classes and playing Donkey Kong in a bar near our dorm. I was making straight A's because I was trying to get into med school. She, get, she came around. And so I'm looking for a Bible college. I've never thought about going to Bible college at all. And I choose Columbia Bible College. And I would love to know what, right? I'm I'm very, like, what kind of ministry? Lord, missions, pastor, youth pastor, silence. Just prepare. Just prepare, okay? And then this school, unbeknownst to me, or I probably would have never gone there. They don't just teach you the Bible. Each semester, they assign you to go out in the community and do ministry. And they don't say, are you a seven? What are you comfortable with? What do you like? They just assign you. So I get assigned to to get in a van with other people and go to the, the housing projects in downtown Columbia. And do open air evangelism and teach the Bible. I've got my Bible and some markers and an easel and butcher paper. And I feel like throwing up every Tuesday. I'm like, oh my goodness. And it's not like there's a community center there with lights on ready for you and people signed up. No, just walk through the project and try to draw a crowd. Oh, love this. But something started to happen. Yes, I felt like throwing up, but something else. I found that I love teaching the Bible. I love breaking it down. What's the point? How do you apply it to life? How might it change someone's life? And if you're in a housing project with a crowd that doesn't have to be there, you got to get to it pretty quick. Hold their attention. Make your point. I'm like, 
I love teaching the Bible. Wouldn't have known that. And so then I began to make plans to be a Bible teacher. Of course, now I'm getting more comfortable, right? I'm getting more comfortable. So I near graduation. I'm like, all right, I'm going to choose a job to do what I'm comfortable doing now. So I'm in the final stages of interviewing a Christian school in Kansas where I'm going to be the Bible teacher and the tennis coach. I love tennis. I love to teach the Bible. What? Perfect. And I come back to my dorm and there's a note on the door. Yeah, there were no cell phones back then. There was no phone in my room. There was a phone at the end of the hall. And if it rang, it was like, somebody please get it. And then go find who it's for. That's how old I am. So I got this note on the door. It says, Pastor Blackwood wants to meet with you. That was the pastor of the church I was attending. I've never had a conversation with this man longer than 30 seconds at the door. Hello, how are you doing? You scare me. I mean, he's like, he doesn't smile. Very scary man. And he wants to meet with me. I kid you not. I was like, what, 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 what? Oh, I've not been going on Wednesday night enough. This was the Baptist church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Takes three to thrive. He said it all the time. And he actually would hiss from the pulpit about people who only came on Sunday morning. Smoes, he called them. Sunday morning only. It's like, you, you'll probably go to hell for that alone. Smoes. Smoes. And I'm like, but I don't have a car. I can't get there on Wednesday night. On Sunday, lots of people go. I'm getting a ride. I had all my argument ready. Why I haven't been there on Wednesday night. I kid you not. I'm thinking he's going to rebuke me for not being at Wednesday night. And I sit down. And he's like, we want you to be our youth and music pastor. I just spent three years saying to anyone who would listen, I never want to be a youth pastor, ever, never, ever. I don't like mud. I don't like whipped cream. I don't like lock-ins. I I hate staying up all night. I feel so wretched for days. It's my worst thought to stay up all night. I was like, no. Oh, and music. I don't read music. This was a church that had organ here, piano here, choir loft stuffed with people. And you buy sheet music and these notes mean something. Altos are supposed to do one thing. Tenors do something different. Basses do something else. No. He said, don't say no. Pray about it. So I prayed about it. And I met with him and said no five times. (laughs) I prayed about it. No. I prayed about it again. No. But then one afternoon, I was on my knees next to my bed. I said, Lord, what, what are you saying? Because the pastor looked at me and said, you have the heart we're looking for. And then, ridiculous statement, we can teach you all that other stuff. All that other stuff seems like a lot to me. But again, outside of my comfort zone, right? I felt like the Lord said, Uncomfortable grace, unsettling grace. I could have thrown up the first three months of my job there. Like, oh my goodness, I can't do this, I can't do this. But I took some conducting courses and music theory courses and I learned to read sheet music. And my sweet wife had played handbells at her church. So I would just sit with her and I'd say, what is that? She'd say, that's a quarter rest. That's like, just about like this. What's two bars with two dots? That means go back to page nine. Ah! She would walk me through. And my favorite answer, you know, because you got people who really know what they're doing in their choir. They love to raise their hand and say, so should the basses do that 16th note in the fourth measure the way it's written? That's a nice way of saying, we're not doing it the way it's written, dummy. And I would just always say, yeah, let's do it the way it's written. Whatever that is. Terrifying. Right? But I love teaching the youth. And I found that I could recruit people who like mud and Cool Whip. And so... This works. And so I'm settling in again. I'm comfortable doing this. So comfortable that I'm willing to do this for a lifetime until Jesus comes. Because I don't like change. I don't like risk. I don't like being. And so all my friends who had similar jobs, whether it's children's or youth or education, it's usually a stepping stone. You do that for three to five years and then you become the pastor of a church. And they would say, Brad, when are you going to take a church? When are you going to be the lead pastor? When are you going to be the senior pastor? Never. Most of my life has been spent doing things I said I would never do. I say never. I don't ever want the buck to stop on my desk. And now I know exactly why I said never. More than I knew. I was like, no, I don't want all that. No. But after becoming comfortable doing what I was doing, God gave me a, a holy unsettledness and a, and a, that I, I wanted to do church differently. This was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. This was knocking on doors on Monday night, trying to share the gospel with people you've never seen in your life. I hate that. That's not how to do it, by the way. 
I was like, oh my goodness, I would have small groups instead of all this Sunday school. People at close range praying for each other. I would teach expressive worship. Why do we have to be so dead? I mean, no snakes, no barking, but expressive worship. Let's lift our hands. We can still teach the Bible and lift our hands. Why? Why do the bad churches with bad theology have the best worship? Let's merge these rivers. I want expressive worship. I want people in small groups. I want not just somebody on staff that counsels everybody with a problem. That doesn't work well. What if I showed everybody how to help a real person with a real problem because they have the Holy Spirit and our church became the church that could help real people with real problems. I had all this to the point that I was like, all right, oh my goodness. I think I want to throw up. It's a lot of throwing up, all right? But I think God wants me to plant a church. And so we, we load up three young kids. And my wife was eight months pregnant in our station wagon. And we drive over here in 1995 for 35 adults meeting in Turkey Foot Middle School. What characterized us the most was what we didn't have. There's no children's ministry. Oh, Sunday school? No, there's none of that. Website? No. Anybody that can play an instrument? No. We got a microphone in front of a cassette tape player. It's such rich worship. No. <laughs> Any biblical counselors? None. Small groups? No. Stardom? We got nothing. And I'm in my basement answering the phone. Hello, Grace Fellowship. (laughs) Please come. (laughs) But as you keep doing what you're doing, God blessed and you begin to grow and people begin to serve and people... And I became comfortable. Didn't want to throw up every day. But then I sensed, I love teaching, but I need to be a better pastor. I need compassion I need more shepherding heart. I want to be more rooted in him. I don't want to be so easily blown over. I I want to have greater insights from the scripture. I want to see lives changed. I want to impact people by his spirit with his word, not just impress people. So I began to cry out, God, make me a better pastor. Give me greater insights from your word. Root me more deeply in you. And what did he do? He sent us a parenting trial in 2005. That broke our hearts and rocked our world. And a trial that has continued to this day. It's not over. It doesn't have a bow tied on top of it. But oh, how it changed us and caused us to cry out to him. Then he sent me a rare debilitating ear condition. That caused me to not want to be around people and just curl up in a ball and not speak and not counsel and not preach. And it lasted eight years. And then, summer of 2017, about three years ago, my wife couldn't walk or move her arms or do anything. Terrifying. We rushed her to the hospital, and after a few days, a neurologist discovered, oh, rare, rare condition again, transverse myelitis. A virus has eaten a hole in the lining around your spinal cord. But by God's grace, he healed her enough that she can walk, she can drive. But it's a new normal that has, listen, so don't hear me saying, is God pun- has God been punishing my, my whole life? Is he punishing us now? No, 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 no. God has graced us with uncomfortable grace that has changed us and made us more useful. And listen, You're hearing some of the hard side of it. Oh, listen, you guys. When you say yes like Mary, and you're willing to go with uncomfortable grace and step out of your routine, and here's the good news. You get a front row seat to see what God can do, to see some amazing things of what God can do and how he might use you in ways that you could have never imagined. But so much of it hinges on Oh, highly favored one, favored one. We don't tend to use that term when you think, I just found out they're letting me go from my job. Highly favored one. Some people, unemployment was the thing that caused them to launch out and do what they'd always thought about, but they would never have done it if they'd just been able to keep this job. You guys, there may be something going on in your life right now and your only thought about it is it's horrific. I question whether God's good. Let me encourage you to rethink. 
it's very possible that it's uncomfortable grace. 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 I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I want to ask you to bow your heads as we close. And I'm going to encourage you to pray a prayer. Consider praying a prayer that I think could change your life. Either by trusting Jesus for the first time or by recommitting in a fresh way to follow him wherever he leads. I invite you to pray this simple prayer. Lord, I give you my life right now. All of it. I'm holding nothing back. And I choose to submit to your word and trust in your will wherever it leads. I want to be like Mary who said, let it be to me according to your word. Oh God, I want to know you more. I want greater intimacy. I want to be more rooted in you. I want to know your word and have insights. I want to get in on what you're doing. I step away from my little kingdom and my agenda. And today I say, lead on, O King Eternal. Use me in my weakness, in my fears, in my inadequacies. I want to see what you can do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.